You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. We continue the teaching this morning from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 25 through 40. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we have been singing together this morning, we have contemplated your holiness. When we think deeply about your holiness, we cannot help but also think about our sinfulness. You are holy. We are helpless, but in Christ, we find hope. I pray this morning, even as we work through our text, that the Holy Spirit would fill our hearts with hope, gospel hope, 
pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I shared this with some of you before, but there are certain texts of Scripture that bring it freshly to mind. In November of 1994, I remember sitting in my Christian school Bible class waiting for my teacher to arrive. I don't remember every detail, but I do remember being informed that he would not be coming to class because his family had experienced an awful tragedy. The day before, his parents, along with his younger siblings, were traveling from Chicago to Watertown, Wisconsin for a birthday party. As they were driving behind a semi, which it was later revealed was being driven illegally, a 30-pound bracket fell off the semi and hurled towards Scott and Janet Willis's minivan, a minivan filled with their six youngest children. The bracket punctured the Willis's gas tank and the sparks it created ignited and then engulfed the minivan in flames. While Scott and Janet were severely burned, they survived, but all six of the children in the van died. As a junior in high school, I, I didn't know how to even wrap my head around what had happened. But I'll never forget gathering around the television with my family and and watching a press conference where Scott and Janet spoke for the first time following the accident. <clears throat> I remember as clear as if it happened yesterday, watching Scott through tears. He read Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I remember as a 17-year-old sitting in stunned silence, wondering, how is that possible? How does a father who has just lost six children bless the Lord? Well, friends, there is only one explanation for the actions of Scott and Janet Willis. God was sustaining them. God was sustaining them. What I now see as I look back on that time is that as God sustains his children in their suffering, he is also glorifying himself and presenting Jesus as an all-satisfying Savior. As I said last week, God is glorified in the life of one of his children when that child reveals Christ as his or her supreme hope and greatest treasure. And this happens in a particularly powerful way during times of suffering. So here's what I'm hoping you will walk away with this morning, brothers and sisters. God will sustain you 
in the midst of your difficulty and suffering. God will sustain you in the midst of your difficulty and suffering, and he will do it for his glory, for your good, for the good of those who witness your faithfulness, and for the strengthening of his church. So let's pick up our study this morning in verse 26, where we will see that God sustains his saints in suffering. God sustains his saints in suffering. After the owners of the slave girl were angered by Paul and Silas and then incited a riot and public beating of them, Paul and Silas were put in prison. And again, as I said last week, this is an account of profound and horrific suffering. Sometimes because we know the story, because we're familiar with the story, we miss that. But this is an account of profound and horrific suffering. And yet, when we concluded last week, we found these two servants of God in a jail cell singing and praying. What a picture of the sustaining power and presence of Christ. Now notice again what the text says back in verse 25 and then moving into verse 26. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. I want to spend a a few minutes here thinking about suffering and the sovereignty of God. I think God's timing is perfect in bringing us to this text. And and there is so much that could be said, but I I want you to see this. In suffering, God is always doing more than you think. In suffering, God is always doing more than you think. And friends, by by pointing out that God is doing more than we can see in the midst of suffering, I'm not not seeking to minimize anyone's suffering. But I am seeking to magnify the goodness and the glory of God. Consider the example of Paul and Silas that we have before us this morning. Here's the first observation about suffering and the sovereignty of God. God is showing incredible love to the unbelievers in this prison by putting the all-satisfying Savior on display. God is showing incredible love to the unbelievers in this prison by putting the all-satisfying Savior on display. What does verse 25 say? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and what? The prisoners were listening to them. As Paul and Silas lay beaten and bloody in their cells, bound in chains, God is strengthening and sustaining them, and their songs and prayers of praise are being heard by everyone in the prison. As Paul and Silas are expressing their hope and joy in Christ in the middle of terribly difficult circumstances, the other prisoners are being pointed to their reason for hope and joy. The all-satisfying Savior 
Jesus Christ is being put on display before those who desperately need him. Friends, have you seen this happen? Have you seen this happen? Have have you watched someone you love put Jesus on display as they suffered? I believe that God is sovereignly orchestrating every detail of the suffering of his children for his good and glorious purposes. When God sustains his children in suffering, it is good for them, right? They are being held close and comforted by the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is assuring them that nothing, right, nothing can separate them from the love of Jesus. But friends, God is also doing more than that. He is not only sustaining his children in their suffering, but he is loving sinners as well by putting Jesus on display. Here's a second observation. God is infinitely wise in what he allows and when he intervenes. God is infinitely wise in what he allows and when he intervenes. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Brothers and sisters, have you ever wondered Have you ever wondered why God waited until this point to deliver Paul and Silas by means of an earthquake? Why didn't God deliver Paul and Silas before they were beaten by an angry mob and thrown in prison? If God could deliver them and would deliver them, why did he let them suffer so profoundly at the hands of an angry mob? Well, I think here we see something similar to what John records in the story of Lazarus' death and resurrection. If you know the story, Jesus is called to come to the aid of his sick friend Lazarus. He is called by Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. John tells us that after Jesus was called, he stayed where he was for two more days. When Jesus does finally arrive, Lazarus is dead and his sisters are confused. But John makes clear that Jesus did what he did, quote, for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, I want you to hear John Piper's comment on this, even though many of you have have heard this many times before. Please listen again and listen carefully in light of what we're talking about here. Piper writes, These are the two great purposes of all things. God's demonstration of his glory in Christ and human beings treasuring that glory above all things. That is the meaning of life 
and of all creation. And these two great purposes are really one. Because our treasuring God's glory above all things, even life itself, is the way we join God in demonstrating his glory. And then he says this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Okay, so keep that in your mind. What do we see in Paul and Silas after they were beaten and thrown in prison? We see what satisfies them most. It had nothing to do with their circumstances. It had nothing to do with their comfort and security or the way people viewed them. You see, suffering didn't eclipse what satisfied them most. It pulled back the curtain to reveal with stunning clarity what satisfied them most. God was most glorified in Paul and Silas when they were most satisfied in him and suffering uniquely displayed what satisfied them most. Again, brothers and sisters, how many times have you seen this happen? You have witnessed the tangible joy and unwavering hope of, uh, of a suffering believer and it drove you not to marvel at the one suffering but to worship the one sustaining the sufferer in fact i i think this is precisely what happened to the philippian jailer we see the evangelistic power of christians who don't lose hope in the midst of suffering You see someone who says, I want what they have. In a moment of desperate hopelessness, this jailer reaches out to the most hopeful inmates he's ever met. Look at verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is a terrifying moment for this jailer. In fact, whatever he believed would happen to him if the prisoners under his watch escaped, he actually thought suicide by sword would be better. But as he draws his sword, he hears a voice, doesn't he? And he knows the voice because it's the same voice he has heard singing and praying. Paul assures the jailer that he and his fellow prisoners have not left. And what does the jailer then say? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer would have had some knowledge of the message Paul and Silas were preaching in the time leading up to the events that transpired with the slave girl and her evil owners. And we know he'd also heard countless songs of praise to God. 
He had listened to Paul and Silas pray. Perhaps he had even heard them pray for him. I, I certainly can envision Paul praying that God would bring salvation to the men who beat him and threw him into prison. And maybe he also asked God to extend saving grace to those guarding him at the very moment of his prayer. That seems plausible. Whatever the case, we know that the jailer asked a very simple question. And it was the right question. What must I do to be saved? This man had seen two men suffer incredibly and never lose hope. And in his moment of hopelessness, he is deterred from asking or from doing what he planned on doing, and he asked this most important question. And in response to a simple question, Paul and Silas give a very simple answer, verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Now, oh, friends, I, I love this. While the gospel is not simplistic, it is simple. In a moment of crisis, the gospel can be easily explained to a terrified jailer, and then to every member of his family. David Peterson writes, eternal salvation is offered in the simplest possible way to those who believe in the Lord Jesus. To believe in the Lord Jesus means that you confess yourself to be a sinner, separated from God and in need of a Savior, a Savior who can forgive you of your sin and give you eternal peace with God, to believe in Jesus is to put your faith in him and to trust him with your whole life. And all of this is a gift of grace. Like this jailer, there is nothing you can do, friend, to earn God's salvation. You must only believe. What a glorious scene this is. And what a glorious reminder this is. That through the faithful suffering of his people, God is always doing more than we know. If God would have delivered Paul and Silas before they suffered at the hands of an angry mob this jailer would have never heard the Christ-exalting songs and prayers of God's tortured servants. And he never would have witnessed the power of God displayed in an earthquake that did just enough to open doors and loose chains. And he never would have been brought to his knees before two men who were ready to answer the most important question he had ever asked. And he never would have been able to take these same men back to his family to tell them about Jesus. When God sustains his people in their suffering, 
He is doing much more than we can see in the moment. Look at verse 33. This is just beautiful. Before the jailer is washed in the waters of baptism, he takes the time to wash the wounds of Paul and Silas. The jailer provides physical care for the men who took the time to spiritually care for him. Right, this is just a little glimpse of how the gospel transforms a life. Verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. God sustains his saints in suffering, and he's doing far more than we can see. Now, quickly, God also strengthens his church through suffering. God sustains his saints in suffering. God strengthens his church through suffering. Look at verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. We can't be sure exactly why this is happening, but the authorities release Paul and Silas and tell them to go in peace. Perhaps the earthquake frightened them. That's possible. Maybe they thought the Most High God that these men claimed to serve was retaliating for the way his servants have been treated. Whatever the case, Paul and Silas are released but notice their response is not to skedaddle out of there as quickly as they can. No, Paul responds in verse 37. Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Another example of Holy Spirit boldness. We've seen this all throughout our study in Acts. First, Paul points out that they were beaten in public without any proper legal process. And this was an especially serious matter since Paul and Silas were apparently Roman citizens. Of course, slaves and non-Roman citizens could be beaten for any reason at all. But the law should have protected Paul and Silas from this treatment. So Paul speaks out. Now look at verse 38. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. They took them out and asked them to leave the city. There's a lot going on here, but let me just say this. When the authorities realized that they had un what they had unknowingly done, they knew they had to act quickly to resolve this problem. The text tells us the men who just days earlier, earlier were 
tearing the garments. Do you remember that phrase? They were tearing the garments from Paul and Silas and ordering their beating with rods. These same men are now apologizing. Friends, don't ever, don't ever underestimate how quickly circumstances can change when God intervenes. So after being severely beaten, thrown in prison, miraculously delivered from prison, and then confronting the same authorities that beat them, Paul and Silas do what? Finally, let's get out of here. What does verse 40 say? So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and then departed. After everything they've endured, Paul and Silas take the time to visit the brand new Philippian church gathered in Lydia's home because they want to encourage them. What a heart these brothers have for the church. Do you see how they treasure the body of Christ? And what kind of impact do you think this visit had on this young church? Brothers and sisters, I have to believe the impact of Paul and Silas's faithful suffering was something like what we read later in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Where he says this, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And then listen to what the text says in verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So I, I see Paul and Silas going, okay, this has been brutal, but God has worked in power. He has intervened. He has delivered us. What should we do now? God, what do you want from us? How do you want us to use our suffering? How do you want us to use your deliverance? And the Holy Spirit motivates them. Go share this with the new believers in Lydia's home. You see, suffering produced strength. God used the faithful suffering of Paul to produce strength strengthened faith in the Philippian believers. Friends, this is one way the church is strengthened through suffering. And and listen, this is really how everything I've said this morning fits together. When Christians see other Christians suffering with joy, it doesn't cause them to look inward where, where they will discover the strength to suck it up and persevere. No, when believers see their brothers and sisters in Christ suffering with joy, they are reminded and reassured that Jesus will strengthen and sustain them as well. 
They don't marvel at the one suffering. They worship the one who sustains his people in their most difficult moments. This is one way God strengthens the church through suffering. As I've been meditating on this text over the last several weeks and and praying for those suffering in our own faith family, and as I've witnessed those I love suffering with joy, I've found great comfort and strength in the words to a song called Christ is All. I think these words help summarize much of what we've seen in our study over the last two weeks. Listen carefully to these words. And in the trial, when storms are raging, though tears may fall, my soul will rise. For there's a peace that is mine unchanging. There is a joy that never dies. When life is passing and strength is fading, I'll see the one that I adore. Let this world vanish. Oh, give me Jesus, my great desire, my true reward. Christ is all. Christ is all. And my song will ever be, Christ is all. All is all. In all. Let's pray.